Hi, I'm Rob Dressel. I'm the Director of Cinematography for Layout. I'm Ed Flusinski, the Director of Cinematography Lighting on Rye and the Last Dragon. And this is the Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we have Rob Dressel and Adolf Lusinski, cinematographers for the Disney animated film Raya and the Last Dragon. Guys, welcome to the show. It's so nice to have, uh, well, first of all, people from Raya and the Last Dragon, but also two guests. Usually we only have one, so we are lucky today. How are you guys doing? Good. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. This is exciting. Now, this is exciting for us because we very rarely get to talk to people about cinematography for animation, and uh, there's so much to discuss. But before we get there, I just want to quickly mention our sponsor today, MZ Education for Creatives. And of course, follow us on your favorite podcast app, search Go Creative Show, hit subscribe, and you will never miss an episode. And Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all of those places, search Go Creative Show, and you will find us, all things Go Creative Show, at gocreativeshow.com. So guys, what a great film. I mean, it, the, the, the cinematography, I guess, is how, how I'll call it, because I'm not really sure even how what else to refer to. But Riot and the Last Dragon is just visually stunning. And uh, I can't even imagine what a fun project this must have been to work on. I mean, congratulations on such a successful, really nice looking um, piece. It, it's just, it's great. Oh, thanks. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. And what I want to start with is just understanding the role of cinematographers in animation. So, you know, and I'd like to kind of even just understand what your titles are and how you're how you're involved in the film. So let's start with you, Adolf. Like, what what is your role on this film, and what does that mean? And I'll, we'll ask the same of you too, Rob. But mm -hmm. let's start with Adolf. Yeah, yeah. So you know, my my title is director of cinematography, lighting, uh, and Rob's kind of the other half. So we're we're working as a pair, and, and we come on uh, early in the film. And, uh, you know, our, our role is to, to, to shoot the movie, uh, kind of analogous to, to live action, but we're doing this all virtual. So it's, it's definitely different. Uh, but it's, you know, at the end of, end of the day, it's the same idea and, and you, you get an image that's been composed and lit and, and trying to tell a story. <clears throat> um, so yeah, we, we get together really early on and we're often working with a production designer too. Um, because everything can kind of work in concert. Um, so we're all kind of three tied at the hip from the beginning till the end. Yeah. And Rob, is that common to have cinematog one cinematographer for lighting and one cinematographer for layup, uh, layup, layout? Is that common for animation? It's pretty much standard, as far as I know, in the animation industry. Um, and I think a big part of that is traditionally uh, in production, they tend to be very far apart. You know, uh, layout comes in very early to stage everything and start developing the shots that come in from story. And in the past, lighting might not come in until much later, but uh, Adolf and I have worked on several projects together. And over time, we've always tried to narrow that gap as much as possible. Um, part of that is, like you said, we meet during pre-production, you know, a year before we start production to really plan out how we want to shoot the film and all the things that are going to go into it, all the color uh that we, again, having the production designer as kind of our third tripod of uh, cinema, cinematography. But um, and we try and incorporate as much lighting into the layout as we can because we're, you know, 
normally a DP on set has that all at his disposal. And we try and try and think of that as much as we can, even though technically in my world and layout, we're not seeing the ultimate beautiful lighting we're going to have, but we're at least know where we're headed. So, yeah. uh, but that's pretty much traditional. So where does it begin? This pro- Now you've worked together on other projects. This project comes to the table around when? Like when did you first start hearing rumblings of, you know, Ryan, the last dragon? Oh goodness, I'm not good at dates, but uh, it's it's at least two years out is when we kind of roll on. So I guess maybe okay. six months before that, hearing like, oh, they're doing a dragon movie. Oh, that's cool. Okay, like dragons, you know that kind of thing. And Adolf and I will be like, you know, what which of the films that are coming down the pike, like which ones are you know pique our interest? Which this one certainly did. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll start about a year out, two years out from release. Absolutely, uh, about a year of pre-production. Um, and early on, you know, the, the story and what's happening is very uh, in its infancy. And we know that it's probably going to change quite a bit. So we kind of get those first passes and steps as to what we think where we're headed. But we know that that's going to change. We try and keep it dynamic. Yeah. And Adolf, when you first hear about the film, are you getting like a script or do you get do you get basic animations to start? Where does it begin for you? Uh, you, you know, uh, for me or us, I would say, is um, about two and a half years out, you start hearing, hearing kind of rumblings. Uh, and then often directors at the studio are, are pitching ideas that are, you know, really just images with a, a kind of pitch and words to, you know, here's what we want to do. And here's 10 images that represent the movie. And, um, and you know, Raya certainly got us excited um, from that, that pitch. But then shortly after, um, we'll get a script. Um, and like Rob said, uh, I think one of the things that's unique about Disney and probably maybe animation studios in, in general is um, since we're all in the same building working together, um, a script at Disney and the story will keep re- iterating till uh, often just wow. months before we finish production. Um, so uh, you know, we take that script. And we start thinking about what we want to do, but also... Keep that really surprises me because like my that. impression of animation, having absolutely no experience with it at all, is that you kind of have to lock things in really early because how are you able to change that? It just seems like impossible to change an animation for me. That that seems really hard to do. Um, but it, it sounds like, Adolf, you're telling me that there's quite a bit of room for you know exploration and kind of changes and revisions along the way. I'm surprised to hear that. Well, it's, it's certainly uh, with not without cost, but uh, you know, I think part of the studio is that flexibility and, and story is is king at, at Disney. So um, over the years, we keep on trying to figure out strategies uh, to, to stay flexible. And just you know, like Rob mentioned, layout comes first. But what we'll do is try to get a a ditch scout of an environment, even though we haven't laid it out he'll we'll pick a few shots and we'll start lighting and we'll kind of do this rough to fine approach for fine-tuning uh, the models the lighting um and the layout will will uh lock in as well but we're we're trying to iterate along the way um and if story shifts then we you know usually haven't finished finished product um you know production in that sequence um you know but with that rough to find process hopefully it's less we're throwing away than more Rob, help me understand what layout means in animation. I, I want to understand what it is that you're uh, you're doing. Oh, um, and this 
kind of goes to that question too about the ability to change. Um, so we get once we don't do our stories in order, so we'll get a different sequence. If a sequence has been boarded and everyone likes and we think it's ready for production, it gets turned over to, to the layout department. And our job is to kind of take those boards and, you know, at the minimalist, we're, we're translating it into a 3D world, but essentially we're building all the shots uh, and staging all the action and the story for the movie. Um, so we'll do kind of a rough pass. And our, our world, we're on the computer. It's a virtual set with virtual cameras, with virtual lenses and rigs. Um, so it's shot the same way. And you know, we try and kind of do a pass at the boards, and then we'll kind of go off and do uh, our own versions of shots and combining shots. And we try and give the directors and the editor as many versions and alts, you know, kind of like live action where you, you kind of want to, editors love the more footage, the better. Um, sure. We will iterate with the that loop, you know, us editorial and the directors and try and get that sequence to tell the story as best we can. Uh, clarity is always king with us as well. So we want to, I also want it to be cool and appealing, but uh, as long as the story is the number one goal. Um, but what's great about that is, you know, like you said, you don't want to reanimate a bunch of things, but in layout, because we work in this, again, we're in 3D, but it kind of looks more like a video game. It's all in the graphics card and yeah, uh, we don't render anything. So it's very quick turnaround. If a story, if there's a story change, like inevitably there's always a sequence that we do. Like in Raya, it was the scene in the kitchen between Benjen and Raya and other parts of the story will change. And it's just enough that that sequence will have to get updated, be it mm. just dialogue, but sometimes... Uh, an entire concept will have to change. So we'll go back in. Hopefully it hasn't been through animation yet and we can just redo it or rework it uh, in layout uh, effectively, cost-effectively and not, you know, if you have to reanimate something or God forbid you have to relight something, you're further down into the pipe where there's a lot more artists um, spending a lot more time. So we try and try and work everything out uh, during the layout process. So the layout is basically the environments. It's also camera placement. Am I, am I right? Yes. So it's what, can you sort of like give us a bullet list of what layout? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's basically, uh, all we do location scouts for all the sets that are coming in to make sure they're going to work. We're going to be able to shoot in there and we do any kind of loops with environments to get those correct or working for the, the shots. Um, we place all the cameras, we stage all, all the action, all the characters. Um, we kind of, we do limited animation. We don't do like, uh, lip sync or anything, but we do try and do facial poses and we're trying to sell the scene as much as possible to know that mm -hmm. it's going to work. Um, we use lighting. Hopefully we can get lighting ideas from Adolf and the lighting department and incorporate that into as well. And we're basically, you know, uh, we're shooting and editing a film uh, on the fly uh, as we go. That is so wild to me. It's almost like a, a, a really, really overboard animatic. <laughs> That's exactly. kind of like how I'm envisioning it. Um, <laughs> So that's interesting. So the state that the, like, you're involved in the, are, well, uh, let me ask, are you involved in the project all the way through to the end? Or do you sort of create these scenes, camera placements get locked, performances get locked, and then it goes for like that final animation? No, we actually stay with it the whole way. So um, while it's an animation, we have what we call a camera polisher. Uh, and he works directly with the animators because, you know, the performance that we do in layout may not be at all what the animators thinking. They kind of bring their yeah. their expertise in and bring things to life. So if they kind of run, we rework something or change something, we have a cameraman with them at all times to help kind of rework the shot live with them as they go. 
when it's out of animation, it comes back to layout and what we call layout finaling. That's to get all the cameras perfect um, and reacting properly. You know, we, we put all those subtle um, moves in the camera. If, if a character just moves his head a little bit, we're going to adjust our cameras and give it that live feel, that operative yeah. feel. Um, so after, when it leaves us, we also have to get the sets. That's the other part of layout finaling is make sure the sets are in order. But we're basically preparing it for lighting for Adolf. And then while it's in lighting, as we go, um, I, I'm in lighting dailies all the time just to make sure that, you know, the cameras are still working, camera shake, depth of field, all the things that Adolf and I planned in the beginning, we still stay together till the very end uh, to make sure it's all working. So Adolf, let, talk to me about when you now jump onto this project. I know you're involved from the beginning, but when you start doing the lighting work, Rob and his team have worked on the layout. They're getting it in a good place. Locations are set. Cameras are set. When do you then now come in and what is your first, you know, order of business? Yeah, I mean, as the projects have gone on and, and Rob and I have worked together on more movies and the technology has gotten better, um, we try to jump in. <laughs> Often we're, we're clawing at layout, like give us something. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Often before they're, while they're in a layout iterating process, we'll have some kind of master shots uh, that help establish a sequence that we're often working on, um, especially for the first half of the production. As things go faster and faster, and we kind of got a, a better sense of where this film was going, um, uh, you know, we're working on other sequences, so we can't be quite that tied. But for quite yeah. a while, we're trying to get stuff on. So we're on top of Rob. <laughs> and okay. out, and we're doing this iteration process, and then uh, they're changing something. We're like, oh, we we thought we had established that, but we just we keep iterating as as we go along the way. So, as lighting cinematographer, though, what like can you do something similar that that Rob did, and just give us almost like a bullet list of what you're responsible for? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the first thing we're responsible for is um, uh, is coming up with ideas to what we want this this movie to be at a, a really high level uh like rob said what he was kind of alluding to is is we we really break down the story and how we're going to tie the cinematography um to, to different story thematics to character arcs and things like that um so when rob is mentioning following through and we're kind of tied together at the end we're kind of reminding each other of, of let's not lose the vision of that um, and then uh, what we start doing in lighting is is we're really establishing what we get is is kind of a blank slate. Um, you know, there's there's textures uh, that have been applied to the sets, but it's um, if we were to render it, it would just be a, a black image. Um, so we literally start lighting lighting these uh, shots, and usually, like we'll start with some establishing shots. Uh, and then as we go and get the, the shots, we're relighting for those shots. Um, depending on what the story is, um, it could be more about really uh, relighting characters to, to sell that story moment or that emotion. Um, if it's it's about establishing this world, we'll, we'll put a lot of the effort there and, and relighting those um, shot to shot. And then, we, you know, our iterative process is what we call is we have a dig scout step in which we might grab stuff and light it at that part. Uh, and then we do what we call foundation lighting, where we're really trying to light the overall sequence uh, once we get the overall layout from Rob and see what that 
that looks like. And then once we get a buy off from the directors, that that looks really cool. And the way we've lit it and the values and the colors, um, the atmospherics that we might place to help uh, sell the mood and the value structures in the image, we'll go on to shot lighting. Now, do either of you have experience in live action traditional cinematography and lighting? Um, no, not shooting on set. The closest I was was uh, doing a lot of previous work on live action films, but uh, you know, never actually uh, behind a camera, a physical camera. And what about you, Adolf? Any like live action lighting? No, no, you know, I definitely, uh, you know, definitely did visual effects for quite a while, but I actually come from a painting illustration background. That's what I went to school for, which, you know, really actually is fairly applicable because um, we start with such a blank slate in animation and and nothing's kind of for free. Um, You know, having some kind of vision to what that's going to be has been really helpful or to just, you know, um, roughen ideas as, as well. I'm curious because it seems like probably more on the camera side of things than the lighting. Well, well, maybe not. Um, it, it seems like there is a certain level of like traditional cinematography, traditional lighting you have to be familiar with yes, in order to sell an animation, especially now that animations are so lifelike. I mean, you know, decades ago when it was just hand-drawn, you know, old school animations, it didn't feel like lighting was as big of a deal or camera movement was as big of a deal. Now you're basically like, it's a, it's a, it's a movie that just happens to be animated. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Let's take a quick moment and talk about MZ education for creatives. Now you want to think about MZ as kind of like the Netflix for creative education. And what I, what I mean by that is you go on MZ and you have access to hundreds of hours of courses that are high-quality, video-based filmmaking education and all sorts of things. Topics like directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. And isn't that exactly what we need to be better at, right? This is what we do. This is our craft. And MZ can help you hone your craft and perhaps learn a new skill that you didn't even know that you had or you didn't even know that you loved. Could open doors for you. Who knows? But the best thing to do is head over to gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ and check it out for yourself. Um, But let's be honest, education is only as good as the teacher, right? And that's what MZ really makes, uh, that's really what makes MZ different from everywhere else. You have top quality trainers that are working in the industry. They're actually working in the industry and at a high level. Um, The Art and Technique of Film Editing is a new course by Tom Cross. And Tom Cross is the editor of La La Land and Whiplash. So, I mean, that's the kind of caliber we're talking about. Uh, Vincent LaFerre is a trainer on there. Shane Herbert, Philip Bloom, the Ari Academy is there, and so much more. Now, yes, you can buy individual courses, and that's great. But what I suggest is you become an MZ Pro member. That's how you get that, like, Netflix-style membership that I was talking about. And you can get 20% off of any of your purchases there by going to gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ and using GCS20 in the promo code, GCS20 at at, uh, checkout. And you will get 20% off of your purchase. And the purchase I suggest is an MZ Pro membership because that's what I do. I love it. And I know you guys will too. So check it out for yourself at MZ, gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZED. 
education for creatives. What What is the skill set that one needs to have in order to be in the cinematography, uh, the cinematography world in animation? And I'll start with you, Rob, um, on the layout side. Um, what skills does somebody have to have to get into that? Um, I mean, our crew, the foundational thing we like is people want, that want to be storytellers, because ultimately that's, that's what we're trying to do. Um, but we look for people that do have uh, a background in, in film, uh, cinematography. Uh, we get people in animation, uh, a lot of people from live action. A lot of uh, our artists or some of the supervisors like me actually come from live action. So we, we kind of teach each other um, uh, a strong composition aesthetic. Um, and then even knowing editing, like how shots go together and why. Because that's a big part of the storytelling, too. It's not just, I got a bunch of cool shots, but how do the shots go together and do they uh, communicate properly? Um, but yeah, we've, our, our, the way we shoot everything is as though, and I, I kind of learned this when I was uh, doing more previous work, but we try and make our cameras all feel like real cameras. Like, you know, in animation, you can kind of do whatever you want, but that's, we, we want it to look like, like you said, it, like a live action film that happens to be animated because that's what our audience is used to seeing, that kind of camera language. Like we use dollies and orbits and push-ins um, or cranes to get our shots. Uh, the new thing now that um, drone shots are becoming very popular in live action and television. So that kind of opens things up a little bit. We can, instead of the big helicopter shot, we can kind of do a little more crazy camera work and it's not going to take an audience member out of the, the movie because they've seen that before. They're starting to get used to that. But we always try and stay as grounded, um, even to, down to where the F-stops that we use. You know, if we're lighting a very bright scene, you know, there's going to be a certain amount of depth of field we're going to get versus a very dark scene. Um, and we can cheat that as we need to, but we try and keep in the realm of what real cameras are doing. We had the director of photography for The Lion King, live action-ish one that came out a, a year or so ago. Mm -hmm. And that discussion was about how they basically shot it with cameras. Like they, it was, it was, you know, digital. It was um, animated, but they were shooting with camera rigs, you know, with traditional camera movement and all that. Mm -hmm. Were any of those tricks employed in Raya or was it purely just computer-based? We've dabbled a little bit with... Um kind of virtual cinema with uh, like a motion capture camera for a, a handheld feel. Yeah. Um, but we've never, I, I've, I've been on, was on the set to see them do the work on Lion King. It was, it was amazing, but it truly was engineered for uh, artists that were used to actually literally pushing dollies and moving cranes. It was all physically generated because that was their muscle memory, their skill. Whereas uh, our skill, we, we, we can do dolly moves and all that, but it's all virtual. All that, what feels like a handheld or a hand operated is all done digitally. We just, that's, that's the talent that we have in our camera people is that ability to, to virtually make it look like that. That's amazing. Now you, a couple minutes ago, you were talking about the ability to kind of cheat things to get the proper F stop and the proper, um, you know, I I exposure and depth of field. But another thing you can cheat is lighting. I mean, Adolf, I'd love to know from you, how are you, kind of employing these traditional lighting techniques, but also with the conveniences of controlled environments and being able to move the sun where you want, move things where you want. Um, let, let's, start, let's start with the techniques. Uh, similar to what I had asked Rob, what are some of the skill sets that people need to have in order to be 
a lighting cinematographer in animation? Yeah, um, <clears throat> you know, just like Robin mentioned, you know, uh, some kind of understanding of, of story um, and uh, being able to sell emotion um, with what they're doing with the lighting. Um, and, then, and then after that, I think it's kind of two components to it uh, because we are Disney and we we do try to produce beautiful image images beyond probably what you could shoot on a camera. And yeah. uh, so the artists do have an eye for um, uh, color and subtleties at a, a really fine level, as well as um, being able to build really clean value structures to uh, frame and compose for the story we're telling, you know, light over dark or dark over light and things like that. Um, and then I think yeah. the third part is then really thinking about um, or maybe there's one more part after this, but thinking about this as a moving picture. So what are we doing with a light as we're, we're moving? Is it flashing um, um, to try to tell a story? Do we re-expose as the camera moves and things, things such as, is that, you know, one thing to keep in mind about animation and Rob kind of alluded to as well is um, the things you kind of see in live action, like lens flares and, and, um, and uh, booms on the, on the lens and, uh, you know, exposure changes, um, those things are all kind of artificially done on top of this. And, and so the good thing about that is we have artistic control over those things where you might be struggling with that or where to, you can't get a light quite up there and we can just hide a wall in, in the CG world. Um, the downside of it is you really have to study that stuff and really watch films to try to replicate those kind of things. Yeah, I can imagine it would be pretty easy to have it look unnatural because you have so much control to do anything you want. Like, okay, a lot of times we talk to cinematographers and they're saying like, all right, the light is motivated. There's a big window. We have a, a large giant light source outside the window. And then basically we're just kind of bouncing or just adding a little bit of fill to a face. Are you using similar techniques in animation where you kind of have like your one established light source and then filling in with maybe practicals or bounces and things like that? I think um, theoretically, you know, we often think like that, that there's some kind of motivation for the light. Uh, like you said, there's a, a window, like I'm being lit. But um, ultimately, I think that's for the viewer to feel that. Uh, but ultimately, just like you had mentioned, we're, we're putting a lot of fills. We're putting a little bit of a, a rim to pop um, head out, or, or we're going to put a little extra light on the environment to, to separate the character, uh, um, or we're going to darken it so they melt away in it, depending on what the, that story is. So it's the motivated light, I think, is um, is interesting and in trying to sell like this animation world is very believable. Um, but then I think really, you know, uh, a good chunk of the work then is is really creating a beautiful image that gets as much as emotion as, as possible. And one thing I would say is we do try to do it as with few lights as possible and try to keep it clean as possible. And, um, and the reason for that is, uh, you know, we have to propagate those light rigs to many shots and the cleaner it is, the better it, it works across a lot of different camera angles. Now you had a unique challenge, both of you, in Raya and the Last Dragon because you needed to create five different unique looks for each of the five tribes. This just sounds incredibly daunting to me. <laughs> and each one is different. Each one feels 
they feel real in a way. They feel authentic in a way, even though they're clearly like, you know, fantasy. But you bring a lot of a lot of authenticity to these worlds. And I'd love to talk to you about kind of your approach to creating all of these. We've got fang, heart, spine, talon, and tail. There's so much going on there. So uh, talk to me first about kind of your reaction when you knew this was what you were going to do. Is this a fun, exciting challenge for you? Or is it like, oh man, how are we going to do this? <laughs> and then talk to me about the way you got it done. And Rob, we'll start with you. Um, it was definitely a challenge in the beginning, you know, to think, oh, we got, you know, we've done movies before with multiple lands and that just opens things up. Um, when we first started planning our cinematography, we were actually talking about very specifically shooting uh, and lighting based on the lands. But we found that trying to stick with that too much was too much of a departure from the story. And we, we kind of planned our cinematography more about the, the through line of, of Raya's journey with trust. So we realized that the environment wasn't that key, able to key on. But at the same time, it's a... It's all about that snoring design. is hilarious, by the way. I have to interrupt you. Oh, I'm it sorry. Is, is it really that bad? <laughs> I can hear it. I think it's really funny, but okay. I want to make sure the audience understands what it is. So you're just going to hear a snoring dog. It's fine. <laughs> you know, just get over it. You've all heard it. You've all been home for a year. You know what a snoring dog sounds like. Um, but Better than I don't think we need to disturb the, the dog at all. Who doesn't want to relax on a nice day like this? So fine. <laughs> <laughs> there was... Um, one thing we did do uh, as far as how we were shooting, um, because of the, the story, like in, in tail, well, actually, the lighting is a little more geared towards that. I'll just stick with camera for a moment. Um, like for Fang, anything we did in Fang, we kind of wanted to shoot that, uh, everything with a centered um, uh, composition. We tend to not shoot things very centered. We tend to you know keep things more closer to thirds. And um, for, for, for Namari and her world, we kind of wanted set to be symmetrical and her world to be symmetrical. Our uh, production designer for environments, Helen Chen, was really pushing for that. Like somewhere in this movie, I'd love to do something centered. So we chose Fang as that because it was its own thing. It's they're the, the enemy, if you will, um, mm. of the film. So we kind of set them a little bit apart with how we shot them. But uh, lighting wise, I think that's where you really see the difference uh, it, amongst the environments. That I'm just hearing <laughs> me too. It's so that. funny. <laughs> yeah. It's no, it's great. It doesn't uh, now. It, yeah. Well, now I think he's he's easing into his REM sleep, and we're really starting to hear it now. <laughs> yeah, Adolf, tell, talk to me about about your standpoint of this because, like I said, you're creating five worlds. They need to be different. They need to be authentic. They need to follow the story and support the story. It's a big challenge. How are you? How are you doing that with lighting? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, you know, Robin mentioned we've worked on um, a handful of projects together. And, you know, one thing that in our process that we've developed um, over projects is actually not getting too connected to the lands. Um, because what happens inevitably in um, the story process is uh, the emotional arc um, or thematic that ends up happening in a particular location yeah. can change. And, um, and that really flips things, you know, at least far as lighting and, and how you shoot it as, as well. Um, so our approach was really looking um, at, we were thinking about the lands, but then we we're really thinking about, we had two story thematics, which was trust and distrust. And what we did is we start talking about what cinematography attributes do we want to go with that? So for example, with trust, um, it was a much more soft lighting 
um, much more long lenses, shallower depth of field. Um, really, we'd work with a set designer to place things that would get bright hits of light or light sources to get really nice bokeh mm. effects. So the production designer, uh, like Robin mentioned, we we're working really closely with to try to do this, but we we're really looking at story thematics. And then once we really understood where those were going to land in, in each land, uh, we tried to incorporate what was going in along in that land um, to, to kind of support the story thematic. So for example, um, you know, water is tied to trust and everybody coming together. Um, yeah. Once that happens, the drones take over, the water goes away. So like tells was all about the distrust uh, story thematic. Um, and so things start working out like that. So it was very dry and arid. Um, and then, you know, we, we had already knew we we're going to shoot that story thematic, um, very, um, with high contrast. And um, we have, uh, virtual film stocks. We wanted to use a really, uh, contrasty, uh, film stock and LUT on mm, that particular mm. thing. And Rob, you could talk about the lens choices for our distrust story thematic. Yeah. We, um, in that same way, we kind of, we have our trust and distrust. So we kind of want to create a contrast. We have one style that's, uh, a certain way, and then we kind of pick the opposite to, to contrast those. So, like Adolf was saying, um, in trust, we have long lenses, which give us that compressed feel, pull a lot of that bokeh. Um, higher cameras, more eye level with our characters. Um, and then, you know, when we flip that for the distrust, we want that sort of that wide lens, which makes things a little more uncomfortable. It opens up everything, and everything gets into sharp focus almost painfully. Um, and we can do that either from one sequence. We think of it more sequence to sequence as opposed to land to land. At Potato's point, the opening of the film is in tail, which is all about distrust because it's Raya trying to get her, her start in the film. And we're starting where we pick her up after all this horrible stuff has happened. Um, but even in a certain scene, we'll actually go from shot to shot back and forth between a long lens and a wide lens, depending on what character we're looking at. If we're looking at Sisu who is the uh, epitome of trust. We shoot her on a very long lens. We get sparkling water behind her. When we flip the camera, we shoot Raya. We're on a wide lens. Everything's behind her is in focus, not very attractive. And the wide lens kind of makes it unattractive too. And we're actually trying to get the audience to feel that contrast between these very two different themes that are battling in the film. An example of that in the film is the midpoint of the story um, where Ryan and Cece are having a conversation. So if you watch that, there's these really sharp, spiny spikes behind Raya and behind Cece. We've placed water that sparkles uh, when it's shot with a really shallow lens. Yeah, and you feel that too as a viewer. Like you definitely, you know when something is comforting and trusting and you know when something feels wrong and, and like, you know, there's, there's bad vibes in there. There's, there's trouble looming. You can really feel that. Exactly. You can really feel that. Um, did you have any visual references for these lands? Like any, were you looking at films, photographs? What, what was inspiring you as you de were developing these lands? Yeah, we definitely were looking at a lot of, uh, other films. Um, you know, a lot of ones that were shot more naturalistic, uh, so like Revenant or something like that. Um, but then also films like Indiana Jones were really inspiring. Um, they really captured uh, the feel 
of you know how we wanted to light this movie where it felt motivated uh, but at the same time it was stylized uh and really added to the adventure um and and it's worth saying i i don't know if we've said it before but you know we had a really talented production designer um paul felix who was um explore you know exploring the color script and and painting that for for uh for production to really have something to kind of visually see what this look like there's a much quicker way to explore um overall ideas with the directors with little thumbnail paintings so um he was doing that he's super talented uh, rob any references for you as you were doing your layout what was inspiring you I was, uh, we were talking about like that, uh, that sort of balanced, uh, or symmetric compositions, uh, movies like hero, um, just have that sort of reverence feel to the characters and a lot of close up work. Um, some anime, like for action, anime movies like kill bill, um, mm. just that have, uh, a lot of movement and dolly work for the fights, a little more lyrical in their way they capture, uh, the fights as opposed to just brute force, but then. Um, also just handheld madness. Like we, uh, in the alien movies, just that kind of camera chasing somebody down a hallway where you lose them a little bit. Um, so yeah, those are kind of all over the place. I want to talk about, uh, Sisu because you had mentioned a few minutes ago that, 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 that character was kind of like the epitome of trust. And I, I want to talk about kind of the the way that you created the lighting and the look around this dragon, Sisu. Um, let's start with you, Adolf. Like, how did you approach this character knowing that it kind of represented trust? Yeah, yeah. so um, you, we knew Sisu fell under that story thematic of, of trust. And, uh, you know, very early on, we, we, had, we had talked about Sisu would be everything we talked about, shallow lenses, bokeh, um, you know, things like that would be associated with trust, the softer lighting, um, and, and Sisu would be that amplified. So some of the, the shallowest shots with the, the most prettiest bokeh, um, the softest lighting, um, was, was with Sisu. And then she had another aspect too, which is, uh, she had a, a power in which she could glow as, as well. Um, so we had, um, our, our lighting soups and, and lighters exploring that aspect as well in a way she could illuminate, illuminate the room and, um, and, and also really provided that, that height of all the broad color range and saturation at the end of the movie as, uh, Sisu comes back to life with, with all the dragons. And Rob, for the cinematography, um, what were some of the things that you were doing to amplify that concept of trust? Always try and shoot around uh, the longer lenses, which also helped because she has sort of that snout and the big eyes. So we always want her to look amazing. Um, and the longer lenses just do that much nicer. So we'd always keep her away from anything that was too wide. Um, you know, even, even at the worst moment, we'd still avoid that. I think the widest lens was when she, well, to spoiler, but when she is, uh, uh passes, but, um, uh, a big thing with uh, a character like her is, is more in the staging of her, um, is keeping her with Raya, but she's got this much bigger head than Raya. And she's got different heights. Sometimes she can have her head right down with Raya, and sometimes she stands up on two legs, and there's a, a huge height difference where she can actually carry Raya. But um, that's more the challenge for us, is just to kind of keep that 
keep them always together in the scene uh, uh, with appeal without feeling one is very different than the other. Yeah. Um, but it was surprising. It really didn't, it didn't turn out to be a very hard thing. We, we kind of, it kind of just fell into place, but it's a much bigger character, especially if you're on a boat, you have to put this large creature uh, with the human. So wrapping her around things and finding little places for her to hang out uh, in just the right way is also a challenge. I can imagine. In our last few minutes, I want to talk about the most challenging scene for you. And it may be the exact same scene for both of you, but let's start with you, Adolf. What was the most challenging scene in Raya and the Last Dragon? Why? And then how did you overcome that challenge? You know, I think it was, uh, I don't know if it would be seen, but uh, it was that third act um, because it, it's... The whole whole damn thing was hard. uh, Because it... One, it, it tends, it's, it's an important part of the, the story. So it, it comes a little later and it's always the most complex um, where we have the most effects um, and, and we're establishing different uh, types of magical things. So for example, um, and, and it was, but it's really fun at the same time. But for example, when Ryan and Amari finally have their showdown, um, all those, that, a lot of that atmospheric, um, that really uh, made that world feel like the, the world was crumbling and all that smoke. Um, the lighters were, were placing that um, shot to shot to really give that world the feel it needed. Um, and effects had provided us with an amazing library uh, to do that. And then that went right into the, the world where they, they, it crushes in and all of a sudden they're kind of stuck underground with, with all these, these drones. And, um, you know that we started that uh, <clears throat> maybe a month and a half before the end of production, um, and it was one of the most complex and longest sequences in the movie. Wow! Um, so it, it was very much a challenge to what are this drone going to look like? How do we get really nice value structures so we can read what's going on down there? Um, and as well, creating that chaos and, and placing different types of effects that so really felt like uh, the world was was an absolute chaos. At, at that moment. And Rob, same question for you, the most challenging scene, why and how you overcame it? Um, I'll, I'll actually go to the, the same one that uh, Edith was talking to about the final battle between uh, Raya and um, Namari. Um, we knew we had multiple fights in the, in the movie and this had to be the biggest and craziest one, like the, the most emotional. Um, so I really wanted to kind of take some cues from anime to really kind of push things a little bit. Uh, and one of my artists, uh, Chris McCain, is a big anime fanatic. He does CG anime at work just in his downtime. So kind of set him loose on that and just let's go crazy. Just come up with as many wild ideas as you can. And we'll just throw it at the editor and, you know, and work from there. And luckily we had actually um, to get the fight moves. We had a choreographer uh, on the show and we were able to even do some uh, mocap to pick up a lot of the fight choreography. So had a lot to work with. He had a lot to clean it up, but um, but we had this really big fight, uh, and the camera was kind of crazy and all over the place. And the directors were like, "This is doesn't feel like an animated film. It feels like a live action movie, but I like it." It's like, okay, mm-hmm. we're we're going down the right path. Um, but eventually, we had this great fight, but it was really long. So the editors and the directors, we all had to kind of get it down to something that still worked uh, in the film, and then reworking the ending to really play up the emotion of. Riot kind of really battling hard against Namari and finally disarming her. 
Um, but I'll also mention the the scene that Adolf is talking about with the drone. The drone were this kind of amorphous, um, you know, blob. And early on in the production, we only had sort of basically just kind of a big blob that we moved around. And then animation would then kind of work a little bit, but effects really had to kind of figure that out later. But for that scene, the last scene, um, effects was able to generate sort of a big pixely version of the actual drone because the composition, that last sequence, we have to feel like there's no escape and there's nothing but drone everywhere. So we always wanted them in the frame, but then uh, it all had to kind of slow down so we could let the emotional beats uh, take place in the in the sequence as well. So the wind kind of slowed down and the drone all kind of slide, sl- slowed down so we could get all that stuff in there, but still feel like they're in dire situations. So that finding that balance to, to work and, you know, it's the pivotal moment emotionally of the film, but it's also the most deadly moment. So that was, that was crazy. That was a tough sequence. I just can't even imagine, like the, the, I'm so impressed by the talent that both of you have and, and the teams that you're working with to get these animated movies out. Like it just seems impossible to me, impossible to me when I see it, I'm watching it. And I'm like, how, no, how do you do this? It just seems insane that this can even be done and at such a high level. But you certainly did it. I mean, the film is fantastic. It's called Raya and the Last Dragon. It's available now basically everywhere you want to have it. It's a Disney Plus. You can see it in theaters. You can get a Blu-ray. I think it's probably out now by the time this episode airs. Go see this movie. You will be better for it and you'll be happy that you did. And uh, if if nothing else just to watch the spectacular cinematography and how you really created what feels like a live action in animation. You really did. It, it, it just, it, it was just so incredible. So thank you so much, Rob and Adolf, for your time. And we'll have to have you back for when this new project comes out. That would be great. Thanks, man. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. All right. I want to thank Rob Dressel and Adolf Lusinski for coming on the show and talking about their cinematography work on Raya and the Last Dragon. I am always so fascinated with how cinematography is incorporated into animation. It's just like mind-blowing. I don't get it. And every time I have these guys on, I'm just like, wow, how do you do it? But uh, I'm fascinated. So what are you going to do? And I'd love to hear your comments on this episode as well. So please let us know in the comments. I also want to thank Connor Crosby from IgnitionVisuals.com for producing this podcast here and making it so great. And Dave Siegel from SiegelSound.com for mixing and mastering the podcast and making it sound so good. So thank you, Connor and Dave, for making it all happen. I also want to encourage you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And of course, your favorite podcast app, search Go Creative Show. Hit subscribe and you will never miss an episode. And for those of you that want to hear more of me, I don't know why you would want that, but some people out there do. And if you do, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Search Ben Consoli and you will find me and see all the things I'm working on with my production company, BC Media Productions. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And I want to thank you for joining us today. And we'll see you on another episode of Go Creative Show next week. Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. Filmmakers.